If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and go to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, that's going to be our spiritual food for this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 uh, through 17. And we're talking about good and evil this morning. We're going to be talking about God's armor that he has for us in the battle that we've called the invisible war. Examining the reality of spiritual warfare in the lives of both believers and unbelievers. And so today, if you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to challenge you today to take Jesus seriously, to come to him by faith, to turn from your way and turn to his way, and to gain ultimately the victory that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are a believer, I want to challenge you today to put on all of God's armor, that God has given you specific things in your life that he provides for you to help you in this battle against evil. One of my first remembrances, a memory of evil, came to me, as I can remember back in my life, in grade school. And I remember being in the classroom, watching the shuttle, the Challenger, take off. And a few moments after a takeoff, this is what we saw as a class, as we're watching on the little TV. I remember thinking something deep inside me that this was not right, that this was wrong, that this was evil. There's something sinister about it. Even though it was an accident, something wasn't right. I know there was a school teacher, I believe her name was Christy McAuliffe. Um, There was seven who died uh, that day on the challenge. I remember thinking as a young kid, this is not right. One of the first funerals I had was for a little baby who was born and 10 days later died uh, because of complications. And I remember being with the family um, those 10 days and then going to the wake and the little baby there. And I had a new little baby. We had a baby ourselves and just overcome with emotion in the little coffin. Sinister evil is real. My very first funeral that I ever conducted as a pastor was for my brother-in-law who died suddenly in his mid-30s. Evil is real. And if we were to go out into the aisles this morning, each one of you would have accounts of evil in your life that you've witnessed, that you've experienced, been a part of. But there's also good in this life I remember as a young child hearing about the truth of Jesus Christ, that there's forgiveness in the Lord, that even though we're sinful, there is hope because Jesus died for my sin. And that was good news. That's the gospel. There is forgiveness in Jesus. And that's good. And we rejoice in the good. I remember the day that I got married and the wonderful joy that was uh, to walk down the aisle and see my bride, that God had provided for me, uh, that God had provided me for her, even though I got the the best end of that deal. What a joyful day when the kids were born and seeing the little ones. There's good in this life. Becoming a pastor here a year ago was something really good that we experienced as a family. Remember Tim called me the Sunday after the church voted uh, to extend a call to me as pastor here. And uh, it, it passed overwhelmingly. What a joyful day. There were just two no votes. 
and I've been working diligently to find out who are you two people, and I will continue to search. There is good, and there is evil. The Bible talks about good and evil, and it's pretty black and white. Now, there are gray areas in, in, our, in our faith, and as we live as a Christian, there are things that are in the gray area, but there's not a gray area when it comes to good and evil. There are two sides, and you're either on one side or the other. You're not neutral. This past week, my family was in Missouri, and I met a newscaster in a major city, a television news guy. I didn't know he was uh, that. He was actually in the weather, and he told us the weather forecast. He actually stood up there at the at the pool and, and our family, he gave the, the weather forecast for the area. It was pretty cool. And I gave him a hard time that he wasn't as good as Tom Skilling. Uh, he didn't enjoy that. Um, but we talked to him and then he found out that I was a pastor that always comes up, what do you do? And he went on to say how he was agnostic. He, he, um, uh, I wrote down what he said. He said, not a, I'm not against the idea of God. Just don't know uh, all that there is to know about if he's real or not. And so I try to keep an open mind and, and, and to go with the flow. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it, kind of? Open mind, go with the flow. Jesus said this, however, if you're not for me, you're against me. You're on one side or the other, good or evil. And today we're going to be looking as we continue our series at these two sides. And as we get into the a side that I want and pray and hope that you are on, God's side, that God gives you armor as you do battle against evil. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you again to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 13. I invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for this, your word. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would bring conviction to us of sin in our life, that you would draw us to yourself as we examine our lives in light of your word, we pray this morning, God. And we ask that you would do a, a work within us and through us, that we would be doing battle with the evil that we know is real. And we pray this, Lord, in your name, Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we look at the text this morning, I'm going to ask six questions as we walk through. Six questions to help us understand what Paul is writing concerning God's armor, okay? Number one, do we fight against people? In this war, do we fight against people? You see verse 13, it starts out, therefore, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, therefore, whenever you see that, you know you got to ask, why is it there? What's it there for? It's therefore to remind us of verse 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So Paul's answer to this question of 
do we wrestle against people? Do we fight against people? The answer that Paul tells us is no, we don't. Now, wait a second, Paul. Uh, you're the Apostle Paul. You're, you're, you're the guy that was named Saul when you weren't a Christian. And before you became a Christian, before you met Jesus on the road to Damascus, by the way, that you were heading to Damascus to persecute more Christians, to do evil and harm to Christians, that's what, that's what Saul did. You came to know Jesus then and your life was changed, but then you experienced a whole bunch of stuff seemingly at the hands of people. You know, Paul was beaten. He was stoned. He was arrested. People lied about him. People spoke ill of him. People doubted the truth that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. People ripped on Paul. He's really, he's really strong in his letters, people would say. He's really strong. He's really tough when he's not in person. But then when he comes, he's pretty weak. That's what they said about Paul. So Paul, what do you mean that we're not fighting against people? We're not fighting. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And I think Paul would respond in this way. I think he would say... Um, in some ways, we do fight against people. We experience people's sinful actions, but there's a deeper truth that's going on behind the actions. Even though harm comes through people, we fight against the sinister spiritual evil that is behind the sinful actions of men and women. Okay, so in, in all reality, we're not fighting people, but we're fighting the evil that is behind those actions. That doesn't mean that there's a demon behind every evil action that someone does to you. If someone attacks you, if someone lies to you, if someone hurts you or damages your family or your children, it doesn't mean that there's a, there's a demon that's possessing the person to do that necessarily. Let me give you two examples. The first example is from Acts chapter 5. This would be an example where there's not a specific direct correlation between a demonic influence. At least we're not told that. The story is about Ananias and Sapphira. Husband and wife, part of the early church. God is doing uh, many miraculous things. He's, he's at work. People are coming together. They're being saved. And they're also sharing with one another, helping one another, uh, studying the, uh, the, the word of God and, and the apostles' teaching. And here we have this story about Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, Ananias, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all. Then his wife comes in, same thing happens. She keeps up the lie. Now, we see here that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then it, he says, why have you conspired this deed in your heart? So there's not necessarily a demon possessing Ananias and Sapphira, but there's the general satanic evil behind the lie that was in Ananias and Sapphira's heart. They didn't need to lie, but for whatever reason, whether it was pride, they wanted to look like they were giving the full proceeds of their sale to the, to the church, whether it was selfishness, they wanted to keep some of that back. They didn't have to do any of it. Peter even said that. You could give whatever you wanted. You didn't have to give it all, but for some reason, satanic influence 
Not directly demonic possession. We're not told Ananias and Sapphira could have been believers. And yet, because of pride, because of this evil, because of the selfishness, they sinned against God and were judged on the spot. But then we have another kind of influence, which is directly demonic. Acts chapter 16. I love this story. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, as we were going to the place of prayer, verse 16, Acts 16, 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by by fortune telling. Now let's just stop right there. She could predict the future. Not her, but the spirit. The spirit, the demonic spirit of divination helped her or told her what the future is. Well, how does that work? I mean, how can, how, can, um, how can demons know the future? Well, it's not that demons know the future any more than any of us do. God knows the future. God's in control. But demonic powers can play pretty cool parlor tricks when they're behind the scenes. Remember, it's an invisible war. If I was to say, uh, in five seconds, my phone's going to ring. And in five seconds, my phone rang. It, it appears that I knew the future, but I told somebody to, to, to call me at a certain time. It's the same way how a demonic power could do that. They can work behind the scenes to make it look like this lady, this woman, this girl, this slave girl who is possessed by a demon predicted the future. When really it's just a fancy parlor trick. So she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this demonic power is causing her to proclaim truth. Isn't that interesting? These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, that is true, but consider the source. It's this slave girl who's uh, making money, predicting the future. This is really a distraction. You got this person following you around, and Paul has enough of it, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, love the ASV there, annoyed, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Then she's unable to do the parlor tricks, and the people get mad. Paul and Silas uh, end up in, in prison. So there's two examples. There's a spe- specific demonic influence or possession, oppression, and then there's the general uh, God of this world sin that each of us experience and struggle with. But in both cases, the evil that we fight against is bigger than, it's deeper than just the actions of people. Now, when we understand this properly, this changes the way that we think about people, doesn't it? It changes the way that we think about enemies. I remember in, in grade school, in, in junior high, actually, being bullied. And, and I've been thinking about it this past week. As you grow up, you forget about some of the stuff like our kids are going through now, but how hard it was for me uh, to even go out in the hall between classes because of one guy named Jim who would bully me and pick on me. I remember walking down the hall, he, he had me in a headlock, walking down the hall the whole way. And uh, that was miserable. We just tell the story now, it's kind of funny. Um, 
But back then, I was scared to go out in the hall. And then I come home and we go to youth group and we hear that Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are you kidding me, Jesus? How can I love Jim if you've seen what he's done to me? But when we understand that it's, it, it's not the people that we're fighting, it's the sinister evil behind the people. And that Jim, and maybe an enemy that you're thinking of even here this morning, their eyes are blinded to the truth. In 2 Corinthians Paul writes this to the church there in Corinth about these people that are unbelievers. And even if our gospel is veiled, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. But in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Jim's eyes were blinded. That changes the way that we think about our enemies. Who's, who's somebody that's given you a hard time? That's hurt you? That's done evil toward you? Just remember this. There's a bigger, sinister evil that we're fighting. It's not the person that we're fighting. This invisible war is against a greater, much more sinister spiritual reality of evil. That's what you're up against. Question number two. What are our objectives? What are our objectives? As we are commanded here, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now when Paul writes uh, the same word twice in one sentence, that's on purpose. He wants to draw our attention to this Word, This word that is translated withstand, firstly in the ESV, and then to stand firm. This word can also be translated to resist or uh, to cope with. It, 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 it literally is to get through it. Put on the whole armor of God so you can get through it. So you can get through this battle. So you can get through this evil place where little babies die and shuttles explode. Put on the armor of God. To stand firm. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, we were reminded, we've heard about, we've been praying about the Fatorma family, Thomas Fatorma, and I, along with others, got to be a part of their life in a deeper way during his last days as he was diagnosed with cancer and died about two months later and through doctor's appointments and, and, and visits in the house and being with the family. Got to be close and very emotional week as Thursday was the visitation, the funerals Friday. Emotional and powerful and God-honoring as the family stood in faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. Some of you came alongside that family during that time. But on Sunday, following that week, as I was in the back, walking around, who walks through the door a little bit after the service starts the Fatormas? And they're standing firm in the midst of evil, death, sinister, spiritual reality as they face trying times ahead. This is our objective. We put on the armor of God so we can stand in those times. 
And you know what? We stand together in those times. They're not alone. The, the reason they're at church, even the week after, the Sunday after, is because they're standing together with other believers. In verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not just you wrestling. It's not just me wrestling. It's not just Paul wrestling. It's we wrestle. That has some implications for us. We are together in this. We are putting on God's armor so we can stand together side by side with the Lord God Almighty. This is why church is a big deal. This is why we come together. This letter was circulated not just to the church in Ephesus. It was also all over. It went all over the, the early church in the first century. They, so they would get this and, and they're all on the same page. Um, we're called to put on the armor of God together. We, together. Together is better than alone. Together is better than alone. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one. When you fight, it's better to have somebody who's got your back. And ancient fighters would stand back to back as they did battle. Two are better uh, than one. And so when we stand together, we stand firm. Let me give you a couple of areas that we must stand together. Keith referenced it in his prayer this morning. We stand together in our struggle against sin. We stand firm together in our struggle against sin. Keith sent out an email to the elders this week about the news of this Ashley Madison website. I didn't know anything about it. I read about it that this website was a website where married people can go on and find other married people uh, to have an affair with. I love the word affair. It makes it sound uh, to commit adultery with. 30 million people and, they, and the, the names are being made public. And there's many Christians, Bible-believing, self-professing Christians on that list. And we are susceptible to that sin as well. Let me ask you this question. Do you think those Christians that are on that list that's being distributed, do you think those Christians had other believers surrounding them who knew that they were on that website? No, they didn't because they weren't struggling together. The way we get through it, the way that we stand firm, the way that we cope with this evil, sinister place that we live in, the world, is that we struggle together with one another against sin. That's one of the things that impacted me one of the first few months here at our church and had a, a members meeting, gathered together and talked about people in the church that are struggling through sin and it was public and it was kind of uncomfortable, but it was awesome because we care genuinely for one another, to be there for one another in those times of sin and struggle. So we put on the armor of God together, loved ones. We also weather the storms of life together. Sickness, death, loss of job, divorce. This is what the church is supposed to be. One of the things that people rip on at the, on the church is it's a bunch of hypocrites. And absolutely, we are. The church is not a showcase for the sinless the church is a hospital for the hurting. 
And so we come here, and we're not perfect, and we are sinners, but we're going to confess our sin unto the Lord and bow our knee to him because he's paid it all on Calvary. He's the one who is holy, and by his grace, he gives us his holiness through his death on the cross on our behalf. And so we stand, not alone, we stand together. We stand with the Lord. One of the things that made America great is also one of the things that caused us to struggle in this regard, the idea of rugged individualism. The church isn't to be full of people who are rugged individuals. It's ones who have come together and have bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. William Hensley wrote the poem called Invictus, which captures a sense of, I'm going to go it alone. He said, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Behind... Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is a sinister, evil lie from the pits of hell. Dorothy Day responded by writing her own poem entitled Conquered. She writes, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Our objective is to stand. We put on the armor to stand together with the Lord. Question three. Who will win this war? Who will win this war? Verse 14. Stand, therefore. There it is. In verse 13, he said to, we put on the armor of God, withstand, so that we can stand firm. Then he starts out with that same word, verse 14, stand, therefore. That means get through it. That means make it through. That means win. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Those who stand, now we get to the armor, those who stand have two essential pieces of armor on. They have the belt of truth on. Belts were critically important, really, in the, in the first century to the, to the clothing of the day. You had an inner garment, an outer garment, you had an outer cloak, and you had a belt, and the belt held all things together. Paul says the truth is the same way. You're to be all about the truth. Truth is to characterize your very life and your existence. Truth. 
Then, you, then you're supposed to be righteous. You have a righteousness. Your breastplate is righteousness. Righteousness, breastplate, covers your inner organs, your vital organs. And so what's going to save your life, your breastplate? What will save your life is righteousness. Righteousness and truth. The ones who win practice righteousness and truth. But here's the problem. Paul writes to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So there's a problem here. Now we get to the two sides, the good and evil, and which side are you on? You are separated from God because of your sin. We're actually dead in our sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You're dead in your sin. What can a dead person do to breathe? Nothing. What can a dead person do to, to move? Nothing. You were dead in your sin, following the prince of the power of the air. You were on the evil side of the ledger. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at works in the son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if you want to win, if you want to make make it through, if you want to be the one who stands in the end, you have to be filled with righteousness and truth. The problem is that's impossible because you're dead in that sin and you're enslaved to the God of this age. But there's good news. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So God makes us alive through Jesus Christ. By his grace, through faith in him. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And then he saves you and he changes you. And then we live and work for him for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friend, are you saved? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have his righteousness? He died for you on the cross of Calvary that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your own life so that when you stand before God Almighty, holy and righteous, he wouldn't see you in your sin, but he would see Jesus Christ in his perfection. Are you saved? Are you saved? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. There is truth and there is righteousness and the ones who win have the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. This is life and death. And because we're talking about such serious things this morning, listen, I gotta share with you some of the scariest scriptures in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Turn there. 
the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are two billion people on this planet who claim to be Christians. Jesus said, The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. How many of those two billion are saved? How many people in this room who claim the name of Christ are truly saved? See, the problem comes when we're given a distorted view of the gospel and when we're asked to respond to something that is not the gospel and it it produces people, listen, who think that they're saved, who think that they're on their narrow way, but, but they're not. They're actually still lost. Let me give you an example. One of the implications of the gospel is that you are saved from hell to eternal life. You're, you, you, you go to heaven when you die. That, that's one of the implications of the gospel. That's not the gospel, however, but it's an implication of it. So I can go to my kids before bed at night, we say our prayers, we go in. Hey, uh, hey, bud, how you doing tonight? Good. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Um, Jesus loves you, and he died on the cross for your sin. You can ask him to come into your heart, and then you get to go to heaven. If you don't, you'll go to hell, which is terrible. It's frightening, and it's scary. And it lasts forever. But you can ask Jesus in your heart and you can go to heaven. That's where mom and dad and grandma and grandpa are going. We're going to heaven too. It's a great place. It's wonderful. You've never experienced anything like it. So what do you want to do? Do you want to pray and ask Jesus into your heart? Yes. Yes is the answer. Who doesn't? And some preachers do that too. Hey, ask Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven. That's an implication of the gospel. Praise God, it's true. God saves us now and for eternity, but it's not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that God has made salvation possible for us to be forgiven and to know God personally, to have a relationship with our creator. That's the gospel, that you could be forgiven of all the wrong, that all of the sinister evil in your life can be taken away by God himself and you can be made a new creation. That's the gospel. The implication of that is that you will spend eternity with God as his new creation. And that's the full gospel. But some of you today, you've responded to an implication of the gospel. You've responded to that. You said a prayer and you're, you're hinging all of, all of your hope of eternity on that prayer that you said and you've never really bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not walking with him, and you're not loving him, and you're not serving him, and you're looking back on that day where somebody gave you the implication of the gospel, and that's what you're hanging on to. It's the get out of hell card, and that is not the gospel. 
The gospel is that God loves you and he died for you so you can be forgiven and you can be right with him forever. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you saved? Say, can't I say a prayer and be saved? Absolutely. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans ten thirteen. But you have to understand who you're calling upon. Question four. Can we get others to fight with us? Can we get others to fight with us? Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is the third piece of armor that is listed. It's the shoes of readiness. It's the shoes of the readiness of the gospel. It's the good news that you're ready with the good news as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. You're ready. You got the shoes on. You got the sandals in the first century. You're ready to share the gospel. I think Paul has in mind what he would have memorized as a Pharisee. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and says to Zion, your God reigns. Man, how beautiful are those feet that take the gospel to people who need to hear the good news. Paul writes to Philemon, verse 6, and he says that I pray that you would be active in sharing your faith, that it would be effective. Peter writes, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in you, but do so with gentleness and respect. Sharing the gospel with gentleness and with respect, but knowing that as a believer, you're called to bring the truth to others. That's how people are saved. They're, they're saved through the church or the people. People make up the church. That's how others are saved. You might not agree with that. You might think, oh, God should just show up in the sky and say, believe in me. That would be a more effective means of evangelism, but we don't get to make the call on how it happens. God has made the call, and God says that he works through people. We are God's ambassadors, and we cry out, be reconciled to God. This is the work that we're called to do. So we would have these shoes on that we'd be ready to share the gospel in every which way that we find the situations in life that we're a part of, this is a big deal. Do we really believe that we have the truth and the life? And are we looking for ways to bring that message to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family? I'll just be honest, this past week I was thinking about this text and thinking about that. Do I really care about people? I care about my family. I care about my loved ones. I care about um, some of my neighbors. I, I care about some people. I, but do I care about people that I would share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, you've got to be careful here because there's a false, um, I've heard this done a lot of times too, like put, try to put a guilt trip on people to get them um, to share the gospel. Like if a building was burning down, wouldn't you go and make sure everybody knows the building's burning and, and tell them? I mean, wouldn't you go door to door and tell them? Well, yeah, you would, but 
that also is not the most effective way to share the gospel. We learn that from Mormons. They get one convert every 750 houses that they visit. And they just say, well, that's the numbers. We're going to go for it and go out, all out for it. But relationally, as you live, are you living out the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel in the places that you find yourself and your family? Do you have the shoes on? Number five. What if the war gets too fierce? What if the war gets too fierce? This verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Start at verse 17. The flaming darts of the evil one, that's in the midst of battle, right? Some of you right now this morning, you're experiencing some, some flaming darts from the evil one. Someone in your household is. And you're doing battle and you find yourself in the midst of some fierce dogfights. And if you aren't finding yourself there, you will find yourself there. So Paul writes, the Lord tells us, take up the shield of faith. And the helmet of salvation. It's this, really, faith in God that you are saved and are being saved. Meaning, meaning this, that all that you are going through is being permitted and is controlled by the God of heaven and earth who loves you and has a plan and purpose for your life. This is what it means to have faith and the helmet of salvation. I'm trusting in God that he has saved me and he is saving me. And he's allowing whatever I'm going through uh, for my good and his glory. You say, well, how much faith do I need? How much faith do I need to get through these times? Well, that, that's not really the question. The question is not how much faith. The question is who do you have faith in? This is why Jesus can say, that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. It's not because it's the size of your faith, but it's because of Jesus. So you might have doubts. You might have struggles. You might be sitting here and you you have a lot of serious doubts now and you're going through some, some trying times and you're hearing the pastor, the preacher, he's telling you this morning that God loves you. You don't feel that. That God's gonna get you through this. You don't know that. That God's got this for his glory and for your good and you don't know to believe that. Let me just give you one of my favorite stories in the New Testament in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, there's a man that comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus uh, to, to heal his son. And let me just give you my translation. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can, you know, heal my son. And Jesus says to him, If I can, if I can. The man says to him, Jesus asks him if he believes. The man says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man had doubts. And Jesus heals his son. The man came to Jesus. He believed, but he had unbelief. And Jesus still healed his son. The question is not how much faith. The question is whose 
the center of your faith. So the war will get fierce. Doubts will assail you. But your salvation does not depend on your feelings. It depends on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And finally, as we walk through the armor of God, number six question, what is our weapon of choice? Verse 17 And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here is the only offensive uh, weapon listed. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is so important. The Bible is the Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God. It's the history of God's people, Israel. It's the history of God's people, the church. It's the record of life of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what we have. And this is what you have if you have it in your hands this morning. That's what I love about this church. We're a Bible-preaching, teaching church. And so we study the Word of God. This is why our kids study the Word. uh, Because it's our weapon. It's how we do battle in this life. It's where we get strength. But the second part of the Word is this. Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, Jesus is God's Word, incarnate in the flesh. And so he is our defender. So we study God's Word. It's, it's, it's our sword. You got your sword? But here's, here's the big thing. Jesus is our defender. Jesus is the one who protects us. Jesus is the one who does battle for us. At the end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 19, we read about Jesus. He's not the meek and mild little baby Jesus. He's not the beaten up, going to the cross Jesus. He's the rider on the white horse. He's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine white linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is our sword. It's Jesus himself. So put on God's armor. Let's do it together, church. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, every believer who comes to Christ. Shoes with the readiness of the gospel to share the good news with others. The shield of faith the helmet of salvation when times get tough, when the enemy is attacking us and darts are coming at us, and pick up your sword, the word of God and Jesus himself as our defender. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks uh, for this, your word today. And and, um, I ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives, that you would, Lord, draw us to yourself, that you would be saving us and that we would be believing that we are saved as you have died in our place. God, I pray for someone who today 
is filled with doubts. Holy Spirit, come and speak to their very heart that you do love them, that you do care for them, that you will see them through this war. God, help us, each one, uh, to put on your armor so that we might be able to stand, that we would withstand, and thank you that through you we will win. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.